Well, that is a hymn of pilgrimage. Uh, there's another old gospel hymn, uh, maybe put even more pointedly. Uh, you might know it. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. That is expressive of the, the dynamic of the Christian life. The believer is on a journey. We are never completely at home. Uh, no matter how well off we are, no matter how good our health is, uh, how secure we feel. And uh, Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, which I'm sure most of you have read, uh, and if you haven't, then time you did, uh, captures so well the idea of us uh, moving uh, onwards. We are moving onwards uh, through much opposition, but with the aid of God to a, a heavenly destination. And that theme is at the heart of our chapter. It's also a very, uh, I think, a very suitable uh, theme for us to be meditating upon this evening at the very uh, beginning of the year. We're on a journey. Uh, we're traveling uh, forward uh, to uh, a city without foundations. The theme of pilgrimage, as I said, is central uh, to the chapter. And that is significant. Uh, significant because we have spent the last few weeks savoring the, the joy of reconciliation. There's been this marvelous uh, return. Uh, Joseph and his brothers have been reconciled. They've been able to put the past hurts behind. Uh, Jacob uh, has now come down to Egypt. The whole family is together for the first time for years. Jacob, along with uh, Benjamin, Joseph, and the other brothers, are together. Pharaoh has promised the best of the land already to Jacob and his family. Uh, the family feuding's over. They've got a place to stay. There's ample provision. Moses could easily have ended the story at this point. Uh, we could have had, put the sign up. They all lived happily ever after. But that would give the wrong impression because there is no... Uh, sign in Goshen uh, that says you have arrived. Uh, this is not the end of the road. Uh, this is a stopping off point. Uh, even although the stopping off would take more than 400 years, uh, they are on a journey. Uh, the journey to the land of promise. It's good to put this uh, whole theme of pilgrimage uh, into the bigger Bible picture. Uh, one of the results of sin coming into the world is what we call uh, alienation. Alienation. We become aliens. We lose our home. Just as Adam and Eve were put out of Eden and the way back was guarded uh, by the, the flashing sword and the two cherubim, so uh, the history of mankind in his sin is one of being estranged, being alienated, being an outsider, uh, not finding a place of rest. And so you have the early chapters of Genesis giving an account of the, the development of the nations, which would be uh, a warring story, uh, nations at one another's throats. Uh, the, the patriarch's story, the, the story of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is one of alienation. Abraham has to leave his, his home uh, in order to go into Canaan. And he is a sojourner in Canaan. 
Uh, he is a man of no fixed abode in Canaan. Um, Isaac, similarly. Jacob is an alien wherever he goes. He's alienated from his brother Esau in Edom and from his Aramean uncle uh, Laban. Uh, later, because of the violence of his sons, he is alienated from the people of Shechem. He becomes uh, a bad smell up their noses, as it were, uh, because of their behavior. Uh, Joseph is very much the alien. Uh, his story begins with his brothers hating him and selling him as a slave into Egypt, uh, where he is for years a man without rights. And despite the fact that he uh, adopts uh, Egyptian dress, has an Egyptian wife, and has a position of enormous power in Egypt, uh, he will always be the, the one who never quite fits. But the promise of God's grace, and one of the, the, the big storylines of the gospel, is that God is going to bring us home. We who uh, have been uh, put out of our home are going to be brought back to a home. God promises a seed uh, that will destroy the serpent, and through the victory of Christ, uh, the door to the garden will be opened up again. So you have that wonderful uh, visual picture of the curtain, the veil of the temple, which very significantly uh, was adorned with, with uh, uh, the cherubim. That curtain uh, symbolizing alienation, symbolizing you cannot enter, you're not at home with God, being rent from the top to the bottom. Jesus, by his death on the cross, has opened heaven's doors. The way home has been uh, made open again because of the work of the Savior. And this future home for which Christ uh, has come is portrayed for us in the Old Testament as the land of promise. It becomes uh, a metaphor for uh, our future hope. Abraham, when he's a sojourner uh, in Canaan, uh, has no place uh, that he can uh, show title rights for except a postage stamp area of ground uh, near the Oaks of Mamre, where he buys a graveyard to bury Sarah. But it's a vitally important postage stamp area of ground because it anchors the hope of the people in the land. They have the promise of God that they will one day possess this land. And even although uh, for so many centuries it looks like a completely unrealizable promise, either because they are just a few nomadic people or because they're slaves in Egypt, God will most certainly fulfill his promise and he will give them the land. And we too, as believers, are looking forward to a land. We have a future hope. We have a future hope of a renewed creation. This is the, the, the very uh, physical future that we look forward to as believers, that one day when Jesus comes, the creation will be renewed. And it will be a place uh, in which Jesus himself is central, where there is no more sin. And every aspect that causes, as Paul says, the creation to groan at present will be done away with. And we look forward to that. And we can't rest content 
with the world as it is. Because the world as it is is not our home. We are looking for a land to come. The passage has got four sections. Verses 1 to 6. Joseph's brothers are introduced to Pharaoh and given lands. Uh, verses 7 to 12. Jacob is introduced to Pharaoh. Verses 13 to 28. Uh, we have an account of Joseph's wise ruling. Uh, in the land of Egypt as the famine bites in years 3 to 7 of emptiness. And then a little section at the end, verses 29 to 31, Jacob asking Joseph to promise that he will be buried in Canaan. Uh, each of these sections uh, has something to say to us about the life of a pilgrim. Uh, first of all, the pilgrim knows God's blessing. As pilgrims, we know God's blessing in our lives. Uh, secondly, when we're thinking of Jacob in the presence of Pharaoh, the pilgrim is able to stand tall in the presence of the leaders of this world. Thirdly, uh, as we look at Joseph as a pilgrim type, the pilgrim is called to bless his community. And then fourthly, as in Jacob's request to be buried in Canaan, the pilgrim has his eyes fixed on his future hope of the land of promise. First then, the pilgrim knows God's blessing in his life. Joseph brings five of his brothers to Pharaoh. Interesting, he picks five, with presumably uh, the five most presentable ones, uh, maybe the five who are least likely to open their mouth and put their foot in it, uh, if you have an important encounter with somebody very uh, powerful and you've got to uh, have a family delegation, you'll be pretty careful about who in the family gets sent to see this person. Joseph picked five. It would be intriguing, wouldn't it, to know who they were and who was left out. Five are sent to Pharaoh. And we have this uh, interesting dialogue. Pharaoh uh, asks the, the usual question, you know, what do you do? What do you do for a living? It's the kind of question we ask uh, people on a uh, first encounter. And the brothers, remember, they've been uh, well briefed by Joseph. When he asks you what you do, tell them that you're shepherds. They don't like shepherds. They'll give you good land. And so they, they tell him that they are shepherds and they request to live in Goshen. And the request has the desired effect. Pharaoh uh, gives them land in Goshen. And moreover, he says, if any of your brothers have exceptional talent in dealing with flocks and herds, then let me know and I'll give them a position uh, in the royal household. Now, Pharaoh had large uh, herds of cattle and many foreigners were employed in looking after them. And so this was uh, a very kind uh, word from Pharaoh. Now, there's wonderful providence at work here uh, in this provision for uh, the family of Israel. If the Israelites, think about it, if the Israelites had settled uh, in the, the highly sought-after arable fields along the, the, the Nile River, it would have generated huge jealousy, wouldn't it? Now, this was prime land, and especially uh, at a time of, of famine, uh, there would have been huge resentment uh, if these uh, extra mouths had settled uh, in the land where they cultivated their rice and their cucumbers and all the other things uh, that this fertile land was capable of sustaining. 
However, they're given uh, the land of Goshen, which is thought to be on the eastern edge of the Nile Delta. Uh, great grazing land, but not sought after by the agriculturalists uh, in Egypt. And there, in this land, they would be quarantined, as it were. Remember we said this before, that one of the ongoing problems that the Israelites will face is the temptation to uh, be taken over by the surrounding culture. And that will happen when they begin to intermarry with pagan wives. And they are, as it were, preserved from doing that because they're set off, they're now regarded as a bunch of, of smelly shepherds in Goshen. And there will be no coming and going between the, the people around. And they will grow as a nation in this corner of Egypt uh, until the time comes when they are ready to be brought out into the Promised Land. And because they are on the east side of the Nile, there will only be one stretch of water, the Red Sea, for them to cross when God calls them forth. One of the major themes uh, is uh, the providence of God in the story of Joseph. God is in control of all events uh, so that his plan of redemption, his plan to obtain a people for himself, to grow up the, the, the nation of Israel, to have them in the land make them a blessing to others, and to have from that nation uh, the, the line that will eventually uh, result in the coming of the Christ. All, all these things is under his mighty care. The movement of peoples, the success or the failure of harvests, the favour of a head of state, the geographical location for the resettlement of a people. All of these practical things are under the mighty governance of sovereign God. It's wonderful to step back sometimes and just see how wonderfully in control our good God is. Humanly speaking, uh, we would not have expected such a warm welcome from uh, Pharaoh for a foreign family arriving with all the retinue. I mean, the, the land is really struggling. There's not enough food to go around. Who wants to have another 70 mouths to feed? And yet, the wonderful thing is it's not Pharaoh who's ultimately in control here. It's the Lord God uh, who is over all. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And this is one of those lovely occasions when God grants a smooth and happy outcome in the lives of those who love and fear him and who are living by faith. Proverbs 16, verse 7, uh, illustrative of what's happening here. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The pilgrim knows God's blessing on his life. Pilgrim stands tall amongst the leaders of the world. In the next section, Jacob is brought into Pharaoh's presence, and it's an intriguing meeting. Here is Pharaoh, the leader of the world's preeminent superpower. Everything about him. Uh, is designed to intimidate those who come into his presence. He is regarded as divine by his people. 
the architecture of his palace is designed uh, to overwhelm, to overawe anyone who comes for an audience with Pharaoh. And here's Jacob, an old man, weathered with his outdoor life, probably well stooped uh, now. And yet he is, there's no sign that Jacob is, is overawed or intimidated in this meeting. There are two remarkable things. First of all, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. He blesses him on arrival, and he blesses him on leaving. Now, uh, the commentators point out that, that the word uh, here could be could legitimately translated as a, a greeting. However, uh, even were that to be the case, that this uh, form of greeting always carries a pronouncement of blessing. And it's only Jacob who blesses. His sons, uh, when they're with Pharaoh, don't um, bless in this way. Uh, so it's a remarkable uh, feature. Here is Jacob, this little wizened man, standing before uh, the, the Donald Trump of his day, and he blesses him. And it's a similar situation when, remember, Abraham blesses, uh, Melchizedek rather, blesses Abraham. Melchizedek, uh, this strange, mysterious uh, priest king from Salem, blesses Abraham after uh, his battle with the Eastern kings. And the New Testament reflecting on it points out that the greater always blesses the lesser. So here is Jacob blessing Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh, in other words, may be great in the eyes of the world, but he is nothing before Almighty God. He stands in need of God's grace. He stands in need of the shalom of God, the peace of God. And Jacob, as God's man, blesses Pharaoh. And this is so interesting because this is what was promised, isn't it? Abraham back in Genesis 12 verse 3 I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed now here is a man Pharaoh a powerful man moved by God to be well disposed toward the people of God he has blessed Jacob with the promise of land and he receives God's blessing from Jacob. God's word being fulfilled. And what remarkable composure on Jacob's side. You know, it's sad when uh, sometimes God's people become starstruck by the people of power and wealth and when they're in the presence of, of people who have the levers of power at their disposal, they tend to tone down sometimes their Christian testimony and kind of drool over these powerful people. Well, Jacob does not do so. And it's all the more remarkable when we think of Jacob's earlier life, when he would have been inclined to dissemble uh, for his advantage. Uh, he is remarkably plain before Pharaoh. He describes his long life with honesty. His life, though it seems very long to us, is short compared to the life of his father and grandfather. And they were years which were marked with heartache. Just think over 
Jacob's history and the things that he's come through. Uh, he had cheated his brother Esau and deceived his father Isaac, and he has lived with the guilt of that all these years. A result of his folly was that he had to flee uh, for his life to Mesopotamia, to his uncle Laban, and that uh, man had deceived him in turn, uh, giving to him on his wedding night not uh, Rachel, whom he loved, but her sister Leah, uh, hidden by her veil. He became a man with two wives, and then two more were added. Coming back to Canaan, his daughter Dinah was raped. His sons deceived him into thinking that his beloved son Joseph had been torn apart by wild animals. His son uh, slept with Jacob's uh, common law, one of Jacob's common law wives. Uh, and then there was the famine, year after year. Imprisonment of Simeon in Egypt, and then his fear for Benjamin's life. So when, when we itemize all of these things, it had been a life of extraordinary difficulty. And you meet with people who have encountered just one of these types of things in their lives, and it destroys them, or it becomes something uh, they obsess over. But Jacob uh, has simply uh, put it in a, in a very straightforward manner. My years have been few and difficult. He's not making out to this pagan man that because he is a follower of Yahweh, everything has been plain sailing. Uh, his life hasn't been a bed of roses. His years have been difficult. A rough honesty, a tough honesty on Jacob's part. And it's a kind of honesty, actually, that uh, is far more likely to, to commend uh, the, the Lord to others when, when we are willing to, to be honest and open about the nature of Christian discipleship. Uh, people aren't ultimately taken in by the thought that uh, the Christian has uh, a life where all problems are dealt with and health and, and, and well-being uh, are automatically going to follow. What distinguishes his confession before Pharaoh is that he describes his life as that of a pilgrimage. He is a pilgrim. Uh, he's not an old man now embittered because he's had so many knocks in his life. He is one of God's people. He is sustained by God's promises. His life has purpose. His life is going forward. His life is going in a certain direction. He is a pilgrim on his way. And God has strengthened him on his way. And he is going forward in the knowledge that uh, there is laid up for him uh, a treasure at the end of the road. That, friends, is the, the deep and certain truth that sustains us as pilgrims, as Christians, uh, going through our many dangers, toils, and snares. We have a hope set before us. Our life isn't going round and round and round like the Buddhist thinks life goes round and round. Our life is, is linear. We are going forward. We are on a journey, and we have a glorious hope set ahead of us. And Jacob, in the presence of this mighty ruler, confesses that he's a pilgrim. My years have been difficult, but I'm a pilgrim. I'm on God's road. There's no road like this road.
Thirdly, uh, look with me at the fact that the pilgrim is good to the community in which he's set. And we're thinking now of, of Joseph uh, in his particular uh, journey in Egypt. Joseph, we see busy at a crucial time in the, the life of Egypt, uh, which he has now become a key player. Uh, but first of all, he provides for his family, and he has exceeded his brother's original request. They wanted to settle in Goshen, uh, to sojourn there, but Joseph gives them property uh, that they came to own in that part of the country. Uh, it was in the district of Ramesses, named after the, the famous Pharaoh and his dynasty. Uh, in other words, these were pastures that were favoured by the king, the king of Egypt, and so especially fit for the family of the king of kings to settle in. And Joseph gave them food. Until their own crops were harvested, Joseph supplied all 70 of his relatives with food, sufficient for them all. Everyone had enough food to eat. None of them would die of starvation, even in those famine times. Now, Egypt seems uh, very decidedly to operate a market economy at this time. Uh, none of the grain that is dispersed from Pharaoh's silos uh, is given as welfare. It's purchased by the Egyptians. And eventually the Egyptians don't even have enough money to buy grain. And so Joseph arranges uh, to take their livestock in place of money. And this was a big step for someone in the uh, Middle East to take because uh, in many societies your livestock represents your status and in the case of oxen uh, your livestock represent uh, your tractor power for uh, agricultural work but came to the point when the people uh, had to give over their livestock and eventually even uh, their livestock uh, is depleted and they become desperate. They have no grain for sowing seed for the subsequent uh, year's crop. And they come and say pathetically to Joseph, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. And so they propose this very radical measure to Joseph, buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. And Joseph agrees to their request. He buys their land on behalf of Pharaoh and he makes the people uh, royal servants. Now, that, that doesn't mean that they became uh, the kind of slaves that we associate with, with North American uh, colonial slaves. They became Pharaoh's property and so, at the, by the same token, they became Pharaoh's responsibility. Uh, he is now responsible uh, for their welfare. And the next uh, uh, move of Joseph was to supply seed uh, for the, the land, sowing at an interest rate from Pharaoh's stores. The people were to return one-fifth of their crop to Pharaoh in the years of plenty. So this is the second time that this has happened. Joseph took 20% of the grain crop in the year of plenty, in order to lay out future stores. And now uh, he is going to tax 
uh, the, the crops because they've been given uh, Pharaoh's land or Pharaoh's seed. And so they will be taxed at a rate of 20%. And that is the ongoing system that will pertain in Egypt. Again, uh, the commentators point out that this was a relatively modest level of taxation. Uh, in Babylon, for example, it was 33 and a third percent that the, the emperor uh, levied on the crops of his people. So here is 20% taxation. And the people are relieved. They're, they're very grateful to Joseph uh, for agreeing uh, to what was, in fact, their own suggestion. Uh, verse 25, you have saved our lives. Well, three thoughts on, on this section. First of all, uh, in this blessing of both the family of Jacob and the people of Egypt, uh, we have a fulfillment in the promise to Abraham that God would bless the nations through them. Uh, God has most recently blessed Pharaoh, and now that blessing is seen through the wise leading of his son Joseph. Jacob blesses Pharaoh, and then the account tells us of the wise administration of God's man in Egypt. Joseph. Uh, he, he has the wisdom of God in administering uh, uh, wise schemes. Uh, he is a trustworthy man handling large amounts of money on behalf of Pharaoh without any sense uh, that he mishandles the money. Secondly, uh, as Christians, uh, we are pilgrims in the land like jo Joseph and Jacob. Uh, we're always, in a, in a sense, strangers but the fact that we are pilgrims and strangers doesn't mean that we are to have an otherworldly attitude to our land, to our communities around us. We are to be rooted where we are, and we are to be people who bless the community around us. Some of us have perhaps uh, rashly committed to reading through Calvin's Institutes in 2017. And in the preface uh, to the Institutes, uh, Calvin is making a case to the King of France for the Reformation. And one of the things which threatened the Reformation was that there was a, an extreme wing uh, of the Reformation called the Anabaptists. And uh, these 16th century radicals uh, did have a very otherworldly view of the earthly state. They wanted to have nothing to do with it. Uh, they didn't encourage concern uh, for the office of the magistrate uh, serving the community. They showed no concern for the place of the king. Uh, they tended to be impulsive and in certain instances run amok. Uh, anticipating the imminent return of Christ. And Calvin is keen to demonstrate to King Francis that Protestants are very different. Uh, Protestants prove to be loyal citizens. Protestants regularly pray for the king. They demonstrate courage and fortitude as citizens and soldiers. They are the salt of the earth. Now, Joseph's a very good example of just that, that which uh, Calvin wants to commend to the king. Here is an example of someone who is a pilgrim and yet 
Uh, he is a wise administrator. He takes on the role of office in the secular state, as Daniel, uh, so much later, will do also. And through God's man in a strange land, alien to the gospel, alien to the things of God, God is blessing even the unbeliever. And so, as Christians, we are to seek are to bless and prosper the people around us. Interesting, isn't it, that uh, Joseph uh, provides for his family and also for the people of Egypt. And there's an ordering as well in our provision. Galatians 6 verse 10, we are to do good to all people, especially to those who are of the family of faith. And we see that in Joseph in a very wonderful way. But as we think of Joseph, and as so often in the Old Testament, don't we always have to lift up our eyes and look beyond Joseph? And we're reminded that there is one much greater than Joseph uh, who would come and who would open the doors of the heavenly stores and provide for us in our need. When we were helpless, when there was no life in us, Jesus comes as our Savior and declares that he is the bread that we need. I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will never hunger. He comes and from himself we find full satisfaction and life. Joseph is continually pressing us to see in the blessing that he is, the greater blessing that Jesus is. Joseph provided for the material well-being of the people. Jesus has come to feed our souls and he feeds us abundantly. Out of his grace we have received one blessing upon another. Finally and briefly, uh, we look at this uh, little uh, scene at the end, this intimate scene between Joseph and his father Jacob. As pilgrims, we are to keep our eyes fixed on the life to come when Jesus will renew all things. As his life draws to an end, Jacob, or Israel, as he is increasingly called now, uh, makes Joseph promise that he will carry his dead body out of Egypt and bury him with his fathers in Canaan. Bury me uh, in that place where that Abraham bought. Now, what's going on here? Is Jacob superstitiously thinking that he'll be separated from his fathers if he's not buried physically with them? That's his thinking? Well, surely not. Surely that's not why he wants to, to be uh, buried with his people in Canaan. Now, even acknowledging that the doctrine of the afterlife uh, is taking shape as Revelation moves on, and that these early saints would have had a, a, a hazy, uh, shadowy understanding of the life to come, even allowing for that, uh, that is not uh, surely what is in Jacob's mind. Jacob's intention uh, is that his family should remember the covenant promise 
Egypt is not the land. We have not arrived yet. The land of promise is not Goshen. Canaan is the land of promise. And so again, the, the, the people's hopes are being anchored tangibly in Canaan by taking Jacob's body back to bury it in Canaan. He is the true pilgrim. His eyes are, are fixed upon what he does not yet see. His eye, he is claiming by faith the promise which hasn't yet been realized, which won't be realized for hundreds of years yet. The writer to the Hebrews, uh, speaking of the patriarchs, would, uh, would write, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Brothers and sisters, we are looking for a country of our own. And therefore, let us show by what we say and how we live that that is our hope. We are pilgrims. May God bless to us his precious word. Father, we thank you for your word to us this evening. Thank you again for feeding us upon the, the precious riches of the scriptures. Lord, may our meditation today on this Lord's Day sustain us not only today but uh, in the coming week that we might show by our word and our attitude that we are indeed uh, travelers. We are heading towards uh, that heavenly country that has been promised to us when Jesus will return and will renew all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When the